Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular guests know, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire our listeners to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably and embrace social entrepreneurship. And please do subscribe to the podcast. It makes a world of difference for us. Today, we are talking to Sue Cunningham, who is the president and CEO of CASE, the Council for Advancement and Support of Education. Previously, she was the Director of Development at the University of Oxford and Vice Principal for Advancement at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Sue, welcome on board. Well, thank you very much, Alberto. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, it's, it's good to speak with you again. I noticed that it's been a little bit over a year since we last spoke. It's great to have you on the show today. And why don't we just kick right off and tell us a little bit about CASE. What is CASE? Sure, happy to do that. So CASE stands for the Council for Advancement and Support of Education. Uh, the organization was funded around 45 years ago, in 1974. And in founding it, it was two different associations that came together, one that was focusing on alumni relations and one that was focusing on public affairs. And in essence, CASE is one of the largest educational associations across the globe. We have members in 82 countries and are headquartered in Washington DC and have offices in London and Singapore and Mexico City uh, and do work across uh, other regions as well including Africa for example and have done for a very long time and in essence what we're doing is supporting those institutions in their external engagement work so we're we're working to support them in advancing education to transform lives and society and we do that through research, through advocacy, through talent management in terms of, of, of programs. We run over 120 programs a year around the world uh, and, and convening communities of people working across the secondary and tertiary sector who are dedicated to advancing education through, in, through engaging with key stakeholders, including, of course, philanthropists. You support around 3,600 schools, colleges, universities globally. Is that right? That's exactly right. And in those institutions, there are something like 92,000 professionals, leaders who get up every day to do what they do because they're passionate about education and the importance of investing and building education for the future and connecting and communicating with key stakeholders and community around that important work. Is it mainly fundraising or does it cover a variety of thematic areas that you're supporting? That's a, I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, it is often the case that people connect CASE as being a, an association supporting fundraisers. And that's true. And uh, our members also work in marketing and communications, in alumni engagement, uh, sometimes in government relations. So we talk about it as integrated advancement, which is really acknowledging the importance institutionally, whether structurally it's all one team or, or structurally it's about strong connections between those parts of the institution. But, but we support and work with people working in all of those different areas in the advancement profession. Most people do simply think it's fundraising. CASE is an organization that's supporting fundraisers across the university sector, but in actual fact, you go broader than that, and it's not just universities, right? It's also schools. Exactly right. It's it's schools, it's it's two-year institutions, four-year institutions at a higher education level. And I think the, the, the importance, particularly I think 
now more than ever, and the recent UPP Commission report relating to university engagement in communities in the UK, I think now more than ever, the focus on the part of universities to truly engage with their community well beyond the staff or the alumni um, or, or um, other people directly connected, because these institutions play a vital role in community and therefore having having advancement really focusing on broader engagement, philanthropy being part of that, but but engagement beyond that with alumni and key stakeholders and community, I think is is critical in terms of building focus and connectivity around the the huge impact that these institutions bring and the how much more impact they have because of that community engagement. Yeah. I mean they are vital parts of society, I suppose, in a in large cities you have a few universities here and there, but in some towns the university defines the town and the region. What's the state of affairs right now in, in these universities in education? Are there any key trends that are worth remarking on uh, that are of either concern or cause excitement at case? Just reflecting on what you said a moment ago, before I was at Oxford, I worked at St. Andrews University as director of external relations. And, and there precisely what you're describing is true. The, the size of the town relative to the, the broader university community means that the university is a really critical and major player in that, in that relatively small but wonderful part of Scotland. Um, I think focusing on some of the things that we're seeing cases I mentioned by way of introduction uh, is very involved in research. It, it, we have a um, something we describe as AM Atlas, which are advancement metrics, um, and really focusing on understanding the the data that sits behind work in alumni relations, in fundraising, marketing, communications, and so on. And this is an area we're really focusing on building. So if I if I focus on philanthropy for a moment, certainly what we're seeing in in some of our um, membership areas. So if I look at the US, if I look at Canada, if I look at the UK, Australia, New Zealand, um, we're seeing increased philanthropic investment for higher education in all of those countries. So mm -hmm. we're seeing the, the, the scale of giving uh, increasing. And as you're probably aware, the survey that we released in the UK a few months ago demonstrated that for the third time, uh, British University has raised more than a billion pounds, um, which is really significant. And that that level of giving uh, seem, looks to be on a, on a positive incline, I think, because of investment and leadership and obviously the generosity of philanthropists. Um, another area that I'm really excited about, a few weeks ago, we launched a survey which for the first time we'll be tracking on a global basis alumni engagement metrics. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, this is an area where league tables, for example, the U.S. News and World Report historically has counted alumni engagement metrics using one single tool, one blunt tool, I would argue, which is the, the proportion of alumni who are giving. Right. And, and arguably that's that's uh, that's leading to inevitable challenge and trouble because as institutions become more and more successful at connecting with alumni, and as institutions graduate more and more people, then the denominator gets larger and therefore being able to even stand still, let alone increase in terms of participation rates of giving is 
is challenging. But I'd also argue in our alumni engagement work with with volunteers in the last couple of years in preparing for this, has, there are so many ways that alumni engagement can advance institutions through volunteerism, through advocacy, through through advising and guiding and mentoring current students, through providing career advice, internships, through helping with governance of institutions, a whole set of ways. And being able to really map out what alumni engagement looks like at its impact, I think is a really exciting and important step. And we've already had hundreds of institutions respond saying they intend to participate in this survey and are really excited about it. Uh, so I, I look forward to seeing how that informs and shapes um, the future of this vital work. Do you find that alumni relations and the appreciation of the value of alumni communities is spreading outside of the U.S.? One of the things that I'm really focused on at CASE, as are, as are my colleagues and, and our huge and amazing volunteer community, is, is being a truly global organization in acknowledging that there is wisdom and innovation and expertise coming from many different directions. So if um, I, I focus back on those alumni engagement metrics, which grew out of our think tanks, which we call our commissions, which mm -hmm. we have on alumni relations and philanthropy and marketing communications. Um, I remember a really pivotal meeting when we were stepping into deciding we were going to we were going to take on this benchmarking, which was, you know, is a pretty significant and complex thing to be doing. And there was a presentation from a group of alumni relations professionals and experts in the UK presenting the work that they had already done around alumni engagement metrics. And I remember those in the room, many of whom were from the US, saying, wow, you have got so far with this. And, you know, in a way, because here in the US, we have such a lot of history in this space, the ability to be nimble around identifying how best to measure alumni engagement is is harder than clearly in the UK, where there's less history. I mean, I, th I think institutions have broad histories of connecting with their alumni, but in a professional alumni relations context, the British history is is um, much briefer. And so the ability of British, the, the, this group of, of British experts to come together and develop some metrics, which obviously have informed the work that we've now been doing globally, was I think a really um, exciting illustration of the kind of innovation and work that's happening in different parts of the world. So I think in short, whilst there is considerable expertise uh, and brilliant work happening in the US, I think we're seeing that happening more and more in different parts of the world. And I'm excited that CASE plays a role in that informing in multiple directions across borders. Yeah, that's great. And in terms of attitudes towards universities, uh, I, I imagine they vary considerably from country to country, but a lot of the times in the UK, uh, people might say, well, you know, the university gets a lot of funding already from the state. Why do you need to tap into the alumni community to get funding? Or there are topics of social mobility uh, in the UK and how many students in, student intakes come from state schools versus independents and so forth. Any attitudes, any trends in the attitudes towards universities that you're detecting? Uh, I think this is a really um, significant issue and a really great question. Um, I read recently two reports, one that was written in the 60s and one that was written in the 80s called the Greenbrier Reports, both of which reflected on the importance of universities building a stronger public understanding 
of the important work that universities are doing, not just in terms of educating, but in terms of research and, and increasingly in terms of community engagement. And I think what we're seeing in many parts of the world, certainly I would say the Western world, is uh, less of a sense of pride around what these remarkable universities are doing. And if you look at, at league tables, US, UK, um, Australia, there are, you know, a number of institutions that are deemed to be world leading and that I'd argue in, in the British context disproportionate in terms of the number of universities in the UK and the number of universities in the world. So there is much to be incredibly proud of. I think if one looks at um, the, the quality and the opportunity and the experience and the dedication within these institutions, of course, everything isn't always perfect. And I think every university I know and work with in, in case is, is is consistently dedicated to refining and reforming and to to looking at opportunities to to build and develop the, the important work that they're doing. And at the same time, I think there's there is work to be done around public attitudes and public perceptions around higher education. Uh, and case is working with um, a number of other associations and it's and and is building this out on really thinking about together how we can support our members in, in the US, in the UK, uh, in Australia uh, and other places in, in building this level of engagement and support. And I'd say, you know, it was interesting. I chaired a panel at our annual conference uh, earlier this year in mm -hmm. Brisbane, in Australia, our Asia Pacific conference. And on that panel, I had three institutional leaders, one from Singapore, one from Australia and one from the US. And when I asked a question there about uh, their experience of working and engaging with, with governments in their various countries, the Australian and the US both reflected on, on the important partner that government is, mm -hmm. and at the same time, the occasional tensions in terms of um, a common understanding of direction and purpose. The Singaporean leader, institutional leader, told a completely different story where he was describing a scenario where the the Singaporean government is is almost thinking ahead of ahead of the curve a sort of Wayne Gretzky quote about thinking about where the puck is going to be mm -hmm. Singaporean government is working hand in hand with universities to think about sustainability and impact for the future and it was it was a fascinating moment of understanding or having a window into different perceptions around the value of higher education, depending where you are in the world. Yeah, I wonder what that says. And um, is it very complicated? And the reason I ask this is within academic environments, and I've spent a little bit of time in these, not everything is as straightforward as it might be in a sort of corporate world. And you have a lot of stakeholder invested interests and mechanisms that are not the most transparent. And, and that's just within one academic institution. You're handling 3,600. The complexity can be a challenge. I mean, the, the universities um, and schools are organizations with very engaged, focused people who are contributing in different ways to the success of those institutions. And in this era of social media and the era of um, communications needing to be incredibly short and direct in order to capture people's time and understanding, um, the, the importance of being able to communicate what these institutions are doing 
in much more succinct ways is something that I'm really conscious that our members are are doing a great deal of work on um, because it's because there's such a wealth of things to convey and to communicate um, around, you know, if one takes a, a university context, the sheer breadth of of research that a university might be doing and the implications of that research, uh, you know, not it may be around around medical research or it may be in, in the social sciences, but the impact and the value is is often huge and significant societally, and yet communicating it can be quite complex, mm-hmm. um, as can be the the breadth of opportunity in terms of study and so on. So I think I think it's important to continue to focus on how how we're communicating about what's happening in educational institutions and thinking about how we're again going back to community, how we're engaging to commu- engaging with communities those who both who have direct connections and those who do not, um, and thinking about how how those connections are are made and there's there's communication in multiple directions to achieve that. What are you focusing on right now? I know when we spoke about a year ago, uh, having a digital platform was something that was keeping you quite busy, making sure that you have a very good, strong focal point for great research was another one, streamlining the governance was another one. There's only 24 hours in the day, so <laughs> how are you focusing and what are you focusing on? Well, no, I think 26 hours in a day is <laughs> but, um, So we're in our fourth year of a strategic plan called Reimagining Case, which mm-hmm. um, has really, as strategic plan should, but with this one, I think it's been particularly true, has provided our map of, of where we're going and what we're focusing on. And there have been a number of really big initiatives as part of the plan, and I'm I'm flattered that you remember the conversation from a year mm-hmm. ago, something we talked about. So if I if I take digital earlier this year, for example, we launched uh, a new website, which was uh, much needed and is exciting to see the response and engagement to it. And the website obviously provides access to a, uh, all sorts of information about case, but also for our members, we have we've had a library of resources for many years, but where people could directly contact our librarians and seek out those resources. Now we have an online catalogue where people can directly access those those thousands and thousands of sample documents and policies and procedures and so on and so forth. So, so that's exciting to see. Our digital journey continues. We're looking, we've done webinars for many moons, but we're looking at really um, building out our, our digital learning and e-learning. And that's growing out of a major initiative that a group of volunteers have been leading for the last couple of years, which is um, our curriculum review, which is both looking at, at what we're delivering in terms of supporting um, the growth of, of these professions and the talent management aspects of it, but also thinking about how we're delivering it and uh, what what's most needed in terms of the professional competencies that people need to be most successful in their roles. And earlier this year, we launched a competency model, which is really about identifying the key strengths that people working across the advancement fields need. So so the digital journey is exciting. And I'm also very excited that our website later on this year is going to, right now it's focusing on, on one case and later on this year it will have an additional element, which we're describing as my case, where there'll be greater individual interaction potential about tracking people's experiences and, and the, the specific needs that they have with the organization. So I'm excited about that. Um, you mentioned governance. Mm-hmm. And again, out of our strategic plan, 
came the proposition that um, whilst our governance structure of 11 different fiduciary boards around the world had supported the institution very well over um, its 45 years of history and all of those boards have were not there at the beginning but have grown over time globally. Um, there was also the determination that to take case to the next stage it would be opt optimal to review that structure and so that indeed has taken place. There's been considerable and, and rightly um, volunteer engagement and leadership on this and last May we took to our membership the proposition that we move to one fiduciary board which will be our global board of trustees and a series of regional advisory councils and local district cabinets uh, and the membership voted firmly in favour of that initiative mm -hmm. and therefore by uh, summer 2020 that new structure will be in place so that's it's it's a relatively short thing to describe and yet when I think about the love and the energy and the focus that's gone into it um, it's it's been a major undertaking and really ultimately this is all about how most effectively we support our members around the world um, and the third area I just touch on briefly is the uh, and I touched on this a little earlier, but this whole area of data and research, um, which is under the banner of AM Atlas, as I described earlier, but it's, it, it is critical for the success of advancement work in schools and colleges and universities um, to really understand and be able to dig deep into, into benchmarking, into understanding what success looks like and and learning from other institutions through said benchmarking about, about mechanisms with which to build and strengthen the important work that, that our member institutions are doing. So the step up we've taken in terms of building our team, in terms of being more ambitious in, in what we're seeking to achieve, um, which included last summer um, case acquiring a, a very major survey called the VSE, which tracks mm -hmm. the voluntary support of education for the last 60 years or so, but Case acquired that instrument, which is now part of our portfolio of surveys, which we're bringing closer and closer together as we're benchmarking, unlike any other organization, advancement activity around the world. So that feels very exciting. But those are three areas, but there are probably about another six or so I could talk about, which is why we need 26 hours a day, Alberto. Well, I don't know if we can pull off the 26 hours for you, but we can try. Tell me, in terms of your funding, how does that work? So, I mean, there seems to be a huge body of work and initiatives that you guys are running forward over there. Is the is it a membership model where the funding comes from the 3,600 institutions who are members? Uh, do you have philanthropists who support you? Uh, do the 92,000 individuals who work at these institutions, do they get involved? What does it look like, the funding? So the, the financial model is that... Um, like many associations, it's it's really sort of um, split into three sections, really. Part of our funding, of course, comes from membership dues, um, which is an area that we're consistently focused on the value that we're providing to our members and, and ensuring, and we've just sent out a membership survey, actually, to all of our members, ensuring that what we're providing is what our members are looking for. Um, a second key area for CASE, a really significant area for CASE, is our programs. Mm -hmm. um, we run more than 120 in-person institutes and conferences in 20 countries around the world every year. So last year we had over 20,000 participants in those programs. And as I mentioned earlier, we also run webinars. But 
that so that's that's a really significant part of our uh, part of our revenue in terms of, of case being able to do all that we do and the third area which is a area of growth for us is is really looking at opportunities for philanthropic engagement and also building our relationships with a group whom we call our educational partners which are which are for-profit organizations who support the advancement profession whether they be consultants or search firms or um, research agencies and so on and and in my experience that group of partners with case are very genuinely partners and there are some initiatives that we're looking at developing together which are which are very exciting um, but the we we hired over um, a, a year ago someone to lead the advancement efforts within case so there's been some exciting outcomes from that in, in including for example support from the Kresge Foundation uh, just over a year ago which is supporting a major project looking at how better we could support minority serving institutions in their advancement work uh, and tomorrow actually is the is the final meeting of the group who've really spent a year looking at what optimally we might do so and again that's one illustration of what engagement with external partners can really help develop and deliver for our membership that's great how did you get into this how did you find yourself running case <laughs> Um, I, um, I've been involved, as, I, as I've mentioned several times during this conversation, volunteerism for CASE is really important. We have about 4,000 people every year who volunteer for CASE in different ways, whether it be about teaching on our programs, speaking at our conferences, sitting on our think tanks, our commissions, helping with governance or helping with key strategic initiatives like the alumni engagement metrics. And so my route into case was as a volunteer. When I was first at St. Andrews University in the late 90s, one, I discovered case very early on, thank heavens, and case was a sort of a real sort of um, resource for me in terms of learning about what I was doing and also building communities so that I had others that I could ask stupid questions of and they were very supportive and welcoming of. Yeah. And so I became... I became involved with CASE very early on, attending conferences, and then over time becoming engaged as a volunteer and helping to do things, for example, like set up a graduate trainee program in the UK, which we're now doing worldwide, and teaching on different programs. So so when the president role came up um, in 2014, and I was very, very, very happily ensconced at the University of Melbourne and loving uh, working with the vice chancellor there on a campaign, um, and I was approached about this role, I was really torn because I was felt that there was much I was still keen to do in Melbourne. And at the same time, case had meant so much to me at that time for 18 years. Wow. Uh, and so um, as one does, I I threw my hat in the ring thinking that this really wasn't going to happen and I'd, I'd, I'd explore it. And that I was deeply fortunate that it did happen. And at the same time, it was it was a tear to leave Melbourne because, as I said, it was an amazing and is an amazing institution, and I had a, a, a wonderful time there. Well, lucky you. You got the role, so that's very good. Indeed. Yeah. In terms of uh, the next 10 years, what does success look like to you and for Case in the next 10 years? I think that's a great question. Um, I suppose first and foremost, success means that in 10 years' time, Case's members are seeing Case as 
critical in supporting their work. Um, so they are truly experiencing the value that case provides. And of course, in 10 years time, the value that case provides might need to look different in terms of what our members most need. Mm. Um, I think another area is, is seeing real impact from the result of initiatives that we're currently developing and initiatives that will come forwards in the future. So, for example, the conversation we had earlier about around the narrative for education and particularly higher education, I'm really keen, any work that we do with our members and in partnership with other associations, this isn't going to shift public attitudes in a month or a year or two or three years. This is a, a long process and of engagement and communication and conversation. So I think 10 years time to see in the various surveys a real shift in attitudes around education and higher education in parts of the world, that would be a truly amazing outcome and a wonderful thing to see. And of course, CASE will have played a part in that, but many others will for that to have been successful. And I suppose the third area is, is this your introduction and talking about the importance of philanthropic investment, with which I absolutely concur. It's it's really inspiring to see in every part of the world in which we have members, the outcomes of people who are philanthropically inclined, working with schools and colleges and universities to invest in futures for people's lives and for, the, and for society. And that, you know, as you know very well, philanthropists don't have to do this. Sure. <laughs> and, and that people do it at, at whatever level is significant for them uh, is truly transformational. And so I very much hope in 10 years that that is that continues to thrive and grow. And I think what I've seen in philanthropy over the last 10 years or more is an increasing focus on the part of philanthropists and institutions combined on the impact of that philanthropy. And again, I think that in, in the next 10 years will increase. And I'm excited to see how philanthropists work with institutions and across institutions, bringing institutions together to deliver things that are inspirational in terms of their impact and outcomes. Is that something that you're noticing as a sort of emerging trend, the more collaborative side of things? There is a genuine engagement and seeing seeing every generation of philanthropists um, really wanting to have greater greater appropriate engagement and seeing the impact of their their work. I'm certainly seeing more of and seeing that true partnership, which can lift things to a level that um, that people might not have dreamed possible before. Uh, I was at a panel a couple of years ago at a conference where I was I was um, in the audience of a panel of young philanthropists, and they were talking all about uh, one. They were not sure about the term philanthropy. They felt that that was in their minds a little dated, and they saw themselves as social investors. Um, but the the, the inspiration of what they were describing and their desire to be truly making a difference and certainly for them making a gift was was a very active engagement rather than a passive one and i think that's an exciting and important development for our world no that's a that's a great uh, observation tell me if our listeners forgot everything that we've been talking about for the last half hour but they walked away with one key takeaway what would that be what is it that you'd like listeners to um, 
to keep in mind after this uh, after they finish listening to, to this episode? That's a great question. I'm, you say one, I may I may split it into two. Great. Um, for those who are working in the advancement sphere, I would say kudos and thank you. And the work that you're doing is incredibly important. Whether you're working in the educational sector or the broader charitable sector, the work that you do is literally transforming lives. And and thank you so much for that great work that you're doing. Um, for those who are listening who are philanthropists, I would say, you know, thank you for your vision and your engagement and for your support and and the ways in which you're helping shape and form um, the educational and charitable institutions of the future. I think that's vitally exciting. And And the third thing I'd say is focusing back on education and the value and impact of education, looking for opportunities to communicate the impact of the educational institutions that you are affiliated with in in a way that celebrates, acknowledges, and communicates to those who may not be connected in succinct and powerful ways. Please, please ponder how best you might do that and work with your institutions to do that because I think that's going to be one of the most powerful mechanisms for getting the message out there and building public understanding of the immense value of education. Well, that's good food for thought. And uh, Sue, once again, thank you so very much for, for taking the time today. I know you're, uh, you're very busy. You're out there in the U.S. right now trying to make the world a little bit better. And I appreciate your time and insight. And to our listeners, please do subscribe if you've enjoyed the show. Do share. Sue, thank you very much. Wonderful speaking with you. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Thank you.